outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 374. And today in the show, I am joined by whitetail addicts Troy Pottinger to discuss his unique methods for targeting mature bucks in the big woods, big mountain country he calls home. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, I've got Troy Pottinger joining me for what is going to be a great episode. Troy is a particularly interesting deer hunter to talk to because he's achieving a level of deer hunting success that we're used to seeing from, from the TV show hunters that we all know of out in Iowa and Illinois and Kansas. But he's not doing this on some big managed farm in the heartland. He's doing it all DIY on public land in the huge forests and hills and mountains of Idaho. And he's also proven that he can take the tactics he's perfected in that location and he can apply it to other parts of the country too and have just as much success. So whether you're hunting the big woods of the Northeast or the hill country of the Appalachians or the Driftless region of Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, you know, there's, there's going to be something here for you. And hell, I've even picked up ideas from this one that I think I can apply right here in the flat ag country of southern Michigan. So that's all to say, I guess, that I... I was particularly excited with how this one turned out. Troy's got a lot to share. If you're not familiar with Troy, he's filmed for the Whitetail Addictions TV show, for the uh, Lone Wolf Custom Gear guys. He does a lot of stuff with them. He's been active um, on social media in various places when it comes to mountain hunting, mountain buck hunting. You're going to find a variety of other folks talking to him about those things. But we cover we cover a lot of different stuff today, and we take it to a level of of detail that I don't think he's talked about in the past. We cover a lot on how terrain influences deer movement and hunting. We talk a lot about thinking about wind and how to set up and identify stand locations that are essentially bulletproof or windproof. And maybe my favorite part of this conversation was talking about scrapes, both natural and mock scrapes, and how Troy really keys in on them for both trail camera scouting and hunting. And he takes us to a different level than and maybe anybody else I've talked to. And it's it's very interesting. I think you're going to be intrigued with it. Uh, I certainly have taken some things that I'm I'm going to try out when it comes to scrapes specifically. So that's the plan. Um, we're going to get right into it here in just a minute. But before that, a couple quick housekeeping items. Number one, uh, 
A new season of the Meat Eater TV show has just dropped over on Netflix. It's part one of season nine. It's five episodes, I think. It's great stuff, a lot of fun. So check it out over on Netflix as soon as you can. Number two, if you're heading out on a hunting trip soon and you're like me and you need to have a good book to read, maybe at midday between hunts or before bed at night, I've got to shamelessly plug my book that I wrote called That Wild Country. If you weren't tuned in earlier this year when we were talking a lot about this book, here's the very, very quick gist. That Wild Country examines the history of how we came to have 640 million acres of public land across the country and all the controversy and characters that were involved in us getting this incredible swath of country that we can hunt on and fish and hike and explore. I mean, it's 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 insane when you think about what we have here. You don't need to be a millionaire to have millions of acres to go play on and explore. That's what we have here in America. Now, In addition to that history, I also wrote about the current events that are affecting these places right now and the future of these places. And then throughout all of this, I shared a series of my own adventures out on these landscapes, hunting and backpacking and rafting and fishing and and exploring them to kind of illustrate why this stuff's important and, and what we can do out there. So all 374 of these Wired Hunt podcasts have been free for your listening pleasure, but if you've ever wanted to find some way to show support for that, and, and thanks for all that maybe, here's your chance. Uh, I can't thank you all enough for those of you who have already purchased a copy or two of That Wild Country. It's meant the world. The feedback I've gotten has been great. That's meant the world, and I, I just really, really appreciate it. So thanks for hearing my plug. Thank you for supporting Wired Hunt and myself by purchasing a copy of this book. And if you haven't gotten one yet, You can head on over to a local bookstore or Amazon or the Meat Eater website and get your copy now. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's it. No more updates, no more plugs, no more of me rambling. Now, there might be an ad later in the podcast. There are a few of those. Thank you for dealing with those. Uh, Now, other than that, what I'm trying to say here is let's get into this conversation. It is a really, really interesting chat. Troy Pottinger is a great guest a great deer hunter, and I can't wait for you to hear this. So let's get into it. All right. With me now on the line is Troy Pottinger. Troy, thank you for being on the show. Hey, I really appreciate it, Mark. Uh, listen to a lot of your podcasts and, and, and keep you know, all of us guys in this, in this game kind of keep an eye on people, and I love what you do, and I've really enjoyed your podcast. So thanks for having me. Well, hey, thank you for listening. I... Uh, I have only one regret about this conversation. I'm very glad we're having it now, but I wish I wish we'd had the conversation several weeks ago before I was in Idaho because maybe I would have gotten some new ideas or been inspired to go to a different part of the state and uh, ended my hunt differently because I, I just got back from your home state a week ago and I came home empty-handed. Uh, so, you know, it's hunting. That's how it goes sometimes, but I'm sure yeah. I probably could have learned a thing or two of you at a time that might have helped. Well, it was funny, Mark, you bring that up because that's one, you know, I was kind of watching what you're doing because I saw somewhere on social media that you're in Idaho and I was like, huh, I wonder where Mark's at. I wonder if he's up north by me or down south. And if it's my understanding is right, you were more down south in more of a river bottom type uh, scenario, weren't you? Yep. Hunting some river bottom stuff. Mostly. I, I hunted a little yeah. bit. I hunted a little bit in some national forest, uh, lower mountain stuff, but I'd say 80% was river bottom. Okay. Yeah, and, and the and the stuff I run around in and have grown up in for 
all my entire life is, you know, you, you've probably done a little bit of homework to know I'm more up by the Canadian border. You yeah. know, I'm up pretty high in the panic. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that area. I, I've fished up there. I've done a little hiking up there, but I've never hunted. Um, what are these kinds of tracts of land like? It's pretty different than the average whitetail hunter out in ag country, right? Yeah. I think, you know, it's, uh, I think it's vastly and drastically different in a lot of ways. And, and one thing I can say, uh, unlike you, Mark, I've, I've hunted a, a lot of places, put my feet on the ground in a lot of States and on purpose because I love whitetails and I love, I literally just have a passion for hunting whitetails all over, but of course grew up being a mountain bow hunter and uh, a mountain whitetail hunter. So to answer your question, this country's it's, it's, you know, bottom line, it's freaking huge. It's vast. It's, uh, unforgiving. It's, it's literally mountain whitetail hunting. And, you know, I hunt some of these bucks up to almost 6,000 feet, uh, not normally quite that high, but I've had some bucks range that high in the early season. And then all the way down to like, you know, the river bottoms in this country up North will drop from we got mountain country that runs up to seven, 8,000 feet, and then it drops all the way down to 1500. So, so the elevation is, is incredible. The elevation change, the topography is, is extreme. Uh, hundreds of miles of timber. This is logging country. Uh, some of the best timber producers in the, in the United States come out of the Northwest up here. And, and, uh, so we've got that industry that's that's basically, you know, we built a lot of America out of the Northwest. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of timber that's come out of this country. And the, and we got the rain and we got the right kind of climate to grow timber fast and have lush, really lush vegetation. Uh, I've had guys tell me that are hardcore elk hunters tell me that the hardest state to hunt public land elk on is North Idaho because of how thick it is. And you, you being a, I know you've, you've done a lot of things and seen a lot of places and hunt a lot of animals. And I know you love whitetails. Anytime you give a whitetail extreme dense, thick cover for hundreds of miles, food for hundreds of miles in every direction in the form of all kinds of green vegetation and, you know, just a plethora of just natural foods and browse. It's pretty interesting. It's really cool. And then you throw in the rugged terrain and the steepness uh, and uh, all the wind currents and the thermals and everything. It's it's a wicked place to hunt whitetails. And then you add in the wolves, the mountain lions, the grizzly bears, and the black bears, and the yodis, and the lynx, and the bobcats. And it's just, it's awesome. It, it It's got my heart and soul. And I've, I've been all over the country, and I've been in places that are more of a whitetail mecca, but I'll never leave the mountains of North Idaho, Eastern Washington and Western Montana for whitetails. I'll, yeah. I'll travel, but I'll never leave this area. Man, from, from everything I've seen and heard, I, I get it. I can see why that would be so appealing. It just seems like that stack of circumstances has got to breed true survivors. Those bucks are going through the ringer between hunting pressure, between all those predators, between the tough weather, tough terrain. Uh, I got to believe you're seeing some, some bucks that have seen a thing or two. Yeah. They're, you know, I, I respect a mountain whitetail more than any animal I've ever hunted. And I say a mountain whitetail because 
I've watched my bucks year to year on camera get torn to pieces by mountain lions, like literally have. I've got one buck that survived a mountain lion attack one year that literally had 10 to 15-inch gashes on his face, his neck, his shoulders, his back, and somehow he got out of it and watched him all through the th- summer in his thin skin and, and short hair, heal, survive it, and then just freaking live, you know, two or three more years. It was better than me. I couldn't get him killed. Uh, yeah, it's wicked. And then one thing I didn't bring up that you brought up, Mark, is we get six to 10 feet of snow in the same exact places that I hunt these deer in. In January, February, March, we'll get up to 10 feet of snow in some of these spots. Oof that these deer have to migrate out of to go survive 10 miles away in the, in the late winter. And then they come back to the mountains when the snow's gone in April. What, what, what surprises me, I think, and and probably a lot of people, if, if they haven't kept tabs on what you've been doing over the years or, or a few other people that are a little bit in the community that folks know of is the fact that you're hunting deer in this kind of situation, which sounds really tough for a deer but somehow the deer you're finding out there are, I mean, they're, they're world-class deer. I mean, these are big bucks that you're getting on for anywhere. You, you throw that buck in Iowa or Ohio and 95% of hunters are going to be drooling. Um, I mean, you're, you're getting on legit deer out there. Am I, am I right? You can, you can, you can admit to that, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, that's one reason and I'm going to, you know, I, Straight shooter as you're going to get. That's one reason I love it here is I have the opportunity to hunt giants. Now, I don't have the numbers and I don't have the percentage of giants that some states have. And that's because of the war of attrition out here on the bucks. Uh, but we have really great genetics. The, the mountains provide endless, endless and ample food for them. Uh, all through all through the spring, summer, and into the fall, all the way into December, until they have to migrate down, which is natural for mountain animals. They migrate down to the rivers and streams and lakes. That's just what they do, and get into the south and still eat well enough to survive. But yeah, we, you know, I'm, you know, Mark, I'm hunting some deer that cross into Canada. Wow. So I'm getting, I'm getting that. If you, you've probably at least done enough paid attention to maybe some of my stuff enough to see that I get really good mass on my older bucks, big, heavy. And I feel like a lot of deer that I hunt kind of resemble some of those big Canadian bucks and our bodies are, our bodies are really big up here. Mark, if they get to the right age, because that cold, cold winters and harsh winters have literally bred out all of the weak genetics. You know, we, our bodies are big. Uh, a lot of my bucks dress over 200 pounds after I, you know, after they're dressed and on the hoof, they're walking around at 250. So yeah, I, I love it because I get to hunt this incredible whitetail that lives in the mountains that can get world-class. Exactly. You know, it's just amazing. There's not a lot of them, but when you find one, it's it, it's freaking awesome to find a deer that makes it to five, six, seven years old and is packing around 180 inches on his head. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds like fun. Um, now, I wanna I wanna dig into the nitty gritty of of everything you're doing to get to that point, but I I have a an assumption 
I'm assuming that you've hunted, as you said, you've hunted into a bunch of different places. You've traveled around the country. You've hunted the whitetail meccas, but you come from this background of hunting these these tough bucks in a tough situation, and you've figured it out in that in that set of circumstances. Am I right that the things that you're figuring out in the mountains and big woods of Idaho, you're able to, I'm thinking, able to apply certain things from that situation and they can also apply to these other states in certain ways and maybe even more effective when you get into a spot where there's more deer or where there's more bucks. Um, is there some crossover? Do you go to a Iowa or an Illinois or an Ohio or an Oklahoma or whatever and then just say, wow, this is, this is kind of easy compared to back home when I take this trick and apply it here? Is that true at all? You know it is, Mark, and I'm going to share real true life stories with you. Uh, just to, instead of saying yes, it is, or I, I don't, even, I don't even want to say easier. Here, here's what I found: when I go out of state and get a hunt, incredible whitetail areas like Iowa, like Alberta, and these are these are places I've been. Oklahoma, hell of a state. I love that place. Uh, North Dakota, Montana River bottoms. Uh, what I run into is a lot less obstacles to kill the same caliber of buck that I try to kill out here and that I've killed out here. And the reason I bring that up is I think we already kind of stated all the different, uh, different just items that whitetails have to make it through to survive out here. You know, we, I didn't even throw in the two month long gun season that I deal with, Yikes. you know, as a bow hunter. You know, that's a long gun season, two months during the, all the way through the rut. And I, and we get, Idaho's called it any weapon state during that gun season. So I just bow hunt it. But anyway, to back to answer your question. Yes. I, uh, two stories I'll share with you real quick that, that will just kind of detail it. I, I think the, the way I understand wind and how whitetail bucks use wind to survive daily in this country has been unbelievable for me when I get to other States. I'm a, I get on, I, I hunt every big deer I've ever killed on his wind. And I, and I dissect it to where I can kill him and set up on him and he never knows I'm there, but he still has everything he wants. So that happened to me in Oklahoma and I, I got to pick where I wanted to hang my tree stand instead of having to sit where somebody, you know, where, where most guys were going to sit. I, I, and it's because I'll get to a spot and say that that ain't going to work on this big deer. And, uh, and I'll just tell people that I got to be able to sit where I want to sit and that's cool. And, you know, and I got to do that in Oklahoma and I killed a 186 inch deer in two hours. Jeez. Um, I went to oh, Iowa, uh, several years back and I got a chance to hunt 500 acres in Iowa with a really good friend. Love the guy, great guy out there. Let me come out and hunt his farm. And I, I was sitting field edges and doing their thing. And I just told my buddy, I said, Hey, let me just hunt my way for two days, the last two days. And let me go dive in like I would in the mountains of Idaho on a big buck. Because when I look at a 500 acre piece to me, that's minuscule, right? It's so easy for me to break down 500 acres. Cause I usually break down five to 10,000 acre pieces at a time. And we can get into that detail later on how that's how I've done that over yeah. the years and for decades. But anyway, I'm in Iowa. I get a dive in, I get to do my own thing for two days. Uh, instead of just waiting on that, those stands that usually tend to produce later in Iowa when it's cold and they're hungry for corn, if you follow me there. Yep. So I dove in, 
uh, the first day, picked it all out on the map of my buddy's place, knew what I wanted to do. Uh, he had been hunting a 192 inch deer. Uh, and I know it's 192. I'll finish the story in a second. And I literally in three hours had that 192 inch deer underneath me at eight yards. And I snort wheezed him right to me. And the only reason I didn't shoot that deer is I believe my, you know, my buddy was the best deer on his farm. And I know how badly he wanted to kill that deer. And he, I literally had the conversation with him. I said, Hey, I said, Jay, uh, if I see double wide and get in on him, what do you want me to do? And he said, kill him. But the way he said it, I just felt like yeah, he's being so good to me. And he's letting me have his, at his shot at his best buck. And he goes, but I haven't seen him in daylight in a month, only nighttime trail cameras. So back to the story, I have this deer, I go in deep. I find these big scrapes. I set up on a hill above it. I have the thermal. I mean, I'm dialed. And I see this big deer in a couple hours, and I snort-wheeze him up to me. Well, I also snort-wheezed a really nice five-point that walked up there with him to me, right below me too, and I purposely shot the other deer so that Jay could hunt the big deer. And Jay later killed the big deer, and he was 192. And I had that deer at eight yards. For Not only did I have that deer at eight yards after I shot my deer and my deer went over and died next to me or laid down by me, that big deer stood in bow range of me for almost 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I'll tell you what, you are both two very good friends. Him for having said that you right. could shoot it right. and you for not shooting it. That's a, right. that's a hell of a good and, couple guys. And I've literally, I've literally told that story for years because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I've been called every name in the world for doing it like a dumbass and everything else. But that's not who I am, you know. I was so happy for my buddy when he killed him in late muzzleloader. That's awesome. And he was excited. And this is a good friend of mine that's a lot younger than me, just had got his farm bought and taken care of. You know, I had a, a little different mindset than him, and, and I think he was shocked that I got in on that deer. And because I wasn't videoing back then, I still today don't know if he believes I had that deer at eight yards, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> and he was broadside and he stood there. <laughs> that's amazing. But anyway, God knows. The good, the good Lord knows that I did. So the whole point of that, to answer your question, is yes, it has been easier for me to get on the big ones. I'll spend years sometimes out here to get one opportunity on a mountain buck of that caliber and, and of that age. Uh, sometimes, it, sometimes, Mark, they just – they just kick my ass and I never see him again after a couple of years of getting on him. And, and I do only hunt bucks out here that are five and older. And, and I understand you only hunt specific target bucks too, right? You find one and you get after him, right? Right. And I always have, I have a number one and every year is different based on what I got. And I really put a ton of time into having a number one, two, three, and maybe a four. Yeah. So that's a lot of effort to find a top four that are all above 160, Whew, yeah. and they're all over four, and they're all over five. They're all at least five years old. So that's that's just where I'm at now, and what I love to do. I I've sent you a, a picture of the buck I'm hunting right now. Yeah, it's a heck of a deer. That deer, Mark. That deer, and you can vouch for me online. That deer's was a hundred gross 170 last year as a four and a half year old. And I left him alone. Wow. And this, and this year he put it on and he's a public land mountain deer. And once they turn five, then I'm on them. And that, that's just what I enjoy doing. 
my son, who's a hell of a whitetail hunter for his age and has grown up doing this with me since he was so freaking little, he, he didn't know any better. I was packing him around in a backpack, shed hunting. Um, he, he'll kill those big four and a half year olds still to this day. And that's where he's at. And he, he and I are totally cool with it because, you know, he's 17 and he likes the four and a half year olds and older and his old man. I like the five year olds because in the mountains, that's where I really see them make those good jumps, five, six, and seven. Uh, and yeah, so that's what I'm targeting Mark. And that's, and, and I always try to have a plan B buck too, but yes, I, I haven't killed a deer that was a surprise since 2002. Wow. Okay. Well there, even just the last five minutes in what you described, I, I added like 15, maybe not 15, but 10 new questions to my list of notes of different things I want to dive further into. But before I get into all that, I got to get a little bit more detail on that Iowa hunt because, because I do think a lot of people listening hunt in places like Iowa or Ohio or West Virginia or New York. And they're wondering, Hey, how can Idaho apply to my place? Can you just describe a little bit more detail specifically how you, like, what did you see on the map that led you to this specific place, which led you to look for a scrape? Just just give me the nitty gritty on that very specific setup that that puts you on the very best deer in a day. Okay. So Mark, I'll give you just an overview. It's about a 500 acre piece. Um, zone four i'll leave it at that and the the piece has a lot of timber on it if i had to guess it's over 50 percent timber um i instantly wanted off of the field edges and i wanted into the heavy security cover and i looked at all the ridges and it had some nice it had some nice elevation in there for for you know for for Midwest or Iowa country, it had some really nice ravines, some ridges, some beautiful hardwood covered ridges. And I just basically looked at the map, looked at where all the food was around the biggest block of timber, looked at all the neighbors, saw where the pressure was coming. And I literally picked a ridge, a a small finger ridge that dove down into kind of a ravine and had a sweet little bench on it. And it would overlook everything down in the really thick cover under the, this, these hardwoods had a lot of brush and, and because I'm not from Iowa, I can't, I don't know what exact kind of brush was in there, but it was real brushy and under the hardwood trees. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I was sitting in oaks and stuff like that. And, and anyway, I, I got down, I, I went inside the timber edge, probably dropped down in there hundred, 150 yards, got on this sweet little bench and could oversee this whole bottom of timber. I could see through the timber. The leaves were off pretty good. Uh, it was it was November, and I could, but the brush was all over. It was just brush everywhere, and I loved that it was brushy. I really liked that. And then I went up the other side, which I think was facing. I think I came in from kind of a northwest angle and got on that ridge and was looking southeast and cold. And the sun was hitting that southeast ridge over there, and that's where those bucks were dead. Was over in that thick southeast kind of uh, face, and that made sense to me because in the mountains up here, the bucks when it gets cold like to bed somewhere towards the south or in the south when it gets cold. And it was cold; it was fairly cold out there when I was out hunting. It was below freezing for sure, but you know, not below zero, but it was cold. 
So I got in there, uh, hung a set real quick. And back then I was running a, oh, I have an old lone wolf, one of my oldest lone wolves. I had one of my buddy had one just like me. So I was, I picked that out of his pile of tree stands and it was one of the old lone wolves, one of the first ones that you can't adjust the seat on or anything. But anyway, I dove down in there with like four or five sticks, picked the ridge kind of from the map, walked in, loved what I saw, started seeing rubs, looked down below me on the little bench I got on and saw a huge scrape probably 35 yards from me. And I'm like, I'm sitting right here. And the scrape was just trashed. I mean, it was, it was freaking as big as a car hood. <laughs> and there was two or three of them, but on the literally kind of around the same area that were smaller, but I just noticed that giant one. I saw those licking branches and, uh, climbed up in the tree, got in there real quiet and set. This was like a midday snuck in and, uh, set till about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. It was pretty early and, uh, saw, saw a buck get up over on the Southeast side and start working towards that scrape. And then I saw the big buck get up behind him out of his bed. So I was probably a hundred and some yards away, maybe at the most from those deer and they were bedded in there. So I got in there pretty quiet, got set up and was just chilling. And they started working towards that scrape and they came down to the scrape below me at about 35 yards, but they weren't, they wouldn't, they hadn't walked into the scrape yet. And I was, I was like, Oh my God, that's freaking double wide. That's him. I'm going to, I thought she's right below me. And it was like 35, 40 yards. And I'll, I'll be honest. I like really close shots and those deer didn't know I was there. So I was like, I want him at 10, 20 yards. And I started looking the other buck over and thought, that's a pretty nice five point with him. That's a, that's a nice buck. And then my whole little voice on my shoulder said, you're going to shoot Jay's buck or not? And I thought, not going to do it. I'm going to shoot that other deer. So they were messing around. They walked into the scrape. Not a real good shot angle. It was 35 yards. And they were kind of, the big double wide buck was kind of posturing the, the other nice buck who ended up being right at about 150 gross. Um, just a heavy, tight, beautiful buck in Iowa that was just a good looking deer to me. And, and, uh, he kind of pushed the buck. I ended up shooting a little more towards me. And then it was funny because he snort wheezed a little bit at that other buck. And as soon as he snort wheezed, I'm so used to doing this up in the mountains up here. I, I just thought, what the heck, I'm going to see what happens here. Cause I'm going to kill one of these deer. And I'd made the decision. I'll shoot that other one. If I get the opportunity, if I don't get the opportunity and the only one I get to shoot at is the big one, I was going to have to make that decision. So anyway, I snort wheeze and I just, and instantly both of those Iowa bucks just boom, locked onto me up in that ridge. And there was brush all over on that ridge. So I knew they couldn't see the deer that they thought they heard. And it wasn't five seconds from then. And the big buck, the giant that Jay ended up killing just starts hammering a tree with his antlers and the younger one and the smaller one, which was probably four year old starts walking towards me and he starts walking towards me. And the bigger buck saw him walking towards me and starts walking with him and tries to pass him and get by him to get to me. So they end up both all the way up under me at eight and 10 yards and I'm at full draw. Wow. And they're literally, they're literally marked three or four feet apart from me, Judge. Oh, they're looking around for, you know, they pinpointed my spot and they get up there and they don't see me. And the wind, I had it perfect. The wind was kind of angling down towards them, but my wind was literally missing them by 10 yards. So I thought, man, I got to shoot one. 
because as soon as they get into my wind, this might turn bad. So I smoked that other buck and he literally ran 20 yards and laid down. And that big buck stood by me and he jumped and, and moved a little bit and wondered what the hell just happened. And then he literally stood by me for a little bit. And then he went over to the buck that I shot and he literally started hitting that buck in the side with his antlers. Really? Hammering, like hitting him in, like digging on him to get up. And that deer's laying there dying. Wow. And then the big buck lets out another snort wheeze, walks back towards me and literally just like strutting around, just strutting around out there broadside of me, easy shots hung out for a, I swear to God, it seemed like days that he hung out as my buck's dying. What a And hunt. I just sit there and I, just, and I just took it all in and I'm sitting next to what I knew was at least a 185 inch buck who ended up grossing 192. Uh, I just sit and watched him and I just chilled and he never once knew I was there. He never once spooked for me shooting that deer other than a jump kind of jumped when I shot him. And then he ended up walking back down into that ravine and into that brush and down towards that scrape and disappearing before I ever got out of the tree. So there was a ton of daylight left in that day, uh, a ton of daylight left. Man. And, and yeah, it was just, you know, so there's two hunts to the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life, a couple hours each. Incredible. I, I, I've, and out West, that might happen once a decade for me. For a two-hour hunt. So there you go. If that helps explain it, that's the best way I could share with you what my life experience has been of hunting these big deer out west. Yeah. Versus going to the Midwest. No, that that is helpful. And and again, I think it's I think it's be really interesting because now I do want to pivot to exactly what you do in Idaho. And and I'm guessing as you go through this, I'm going to be thinking, oh, that could work in northern Michigan in the big woods, or this might work in this hill country in Iowa, or that might work here. I'm, I'm wanting to to see where all these things are going to translate. And so I guess rather than expect or talking about what I think you're going to say, let's just hear what you have to say. Um, first thing I want to kind of dive into, you alluded to this a second ago, but when you're hunting big tracts of public land like you are, where there's this massive stretches of, of public land, all timber, it can be intimidating. It's hard to pick something out of all this, what seems to the average person maybe at first glance to just be all the same kind of thing. How do you break down these huge tracts into smaller areas that you're going to focus? Or, or maybe that's not what you do, but how do you pick the places you're going to focus on within this massive millions of acres of ground that you could hypothetically hunt? Right. A lot of it has to do with 30 plus years of doing it. Um, I am a detailed map study guy, topo map since I was young. Elevation and learning what elevation old mature bucks love to live at in the mountains because of how the wind works, how it works for them to stay alive is huge. So we can get into all these key things. So habitat rolls in right behind that. Um, and then I'm always picking elevations that work kind of at the top of a doe family groups elevation to, you know, kind of where they like to about as high as doe family groups like to live in conjunction with 
where these big old hermit type mountain bucks and they become hermits. They don't hang out with many other deer. They hardly ever socialize other than at a scrape or maybe real early summer a little bit. But those elevations that are just like bulletproof for those big deer, elevation combined with habitat, combined with contour of the ridges so that they literally can use a thermal and a prevailing wind all day, all night to stay alive. And it's because they get markets, they live there because they're getting hunted by lions, grizz, bear, uh, wolves every week. You know, it, us humans that think we're putting all the pressure and making them smart, nah, not even close out here. It's those alpha predators that we have that literally, I lose a lot of bucks. I, I, bucks, bucks come and go out here and, I learned not to get extremely attached because I've just seen too many cougar kills, walked up on them and found too many deadhead cougar kills and wolf kills. And, you know, and our bears love to eat all our fawns. And it's just kind of the nature of the beast out here. So I really zone in on topography, elevation, and it's all based on how the wind allows that buck to survive every day of his life and how the terrain protects him, if that makes sense. It does, but I I I want to get one step f- back from what you're talking about there because that seems to be how you're picking like the the smaller focus areas, like where to specifically to hunt. But what about when you're like if you were brand new to Idaho, or or maybe we're in right. New Hampshire, let's say, where there's a bunch of hills and it's kind of similar, but you don't know, you know, you don't right. know that this twenty mile square area is good. How do you? Right. How do you? What am I trying to say here? Like, let's say like there's a whole bunch of places that would have that same elevation you're talking about. And there's probably a whole bunch of places within 5 million acres that would have the right contours and the right types of topography. So is there, do you look for a starting point, something like, hey, here's a bunch of clear cuts and then I'm going to try to find everything around it. Is there any kind of central thing that starts as the pin on the map and then you try to look for those specific things? Um I guess I'm just wondering the one step before what you described. Gotcha. And I, and I, I did, I did say one word about it and it's huge is, so we just talked topography there and a topo map, basically hundred percent. Then you got to overlay it with the right habitat. It's all about food and water, 90% of their life, food, water, cover. So those three things, food, water security is what it is Mm -hmm. for these deer. So the right elevation uh, the wind that, that literally gives them the, the, that perfect, livable, survivable, everyday wind that keeps them alive from predators, and then all the habitat is there. It's, it's got to have the food, which is the native habitat where there's zero agriculture. There's zero acorns. There's zero apple trees. I mean, it's what you get is you get into the mountain habitat, and you jump from things like that to huckleberries and wild, all kinds of wild berries that grow in the mountains, um, all kinds of different uh, plants that they forage on, red stem, cyanosis. Uh, They literally eat the old man's beard off of all the trees. And then our country is just amazing. We have green grass that grows in the mountains. And anywhere there's a logging clear cut or someplace where the logging industry has come in and opened up the canopy, it turns into a food plot for the wild animals after they burn it and all the fresh green vegetation grows up in it. And there's literally too many to list, 
but it's incredible. It's just like a food plot on the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. So yes, to answer your question, all of those things combined, and then you got to have the groceries and you got to have the hideout and the safety. And we do in this country, in these mountains have a lot of water. Water is pretty darn easy to find for a wild animal in this country. So water's really never a huge issue. Food literally is spread out across hundreds of miles in the timber. And if you got logging, you got even better food or old logging clear cuts. And then they turn into unbelievable bedding areas when the cuts get to like 40, 50 years old and they still have food in them. So yeah, I'm playing that whole game and putting all those pieces of the puzzles together before I even go step foot on it nowadays. In the old days, everything was boots on the ground first because all I had was a topo map. I didn't have Google Earth. I didn't, I didn't have all the amenities that we have nowadays that are awesome that we can just literally get on our computer and look at it from the sky. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier for me nowadays to just pinpoint. Yeah. So if that helps answer, that habitat is huge, Mark. That food has to be there. That hideout has to be there. That water has to be there. Everything has to be there for them to want to stay there and live there. So you mentioned the elevation. What's this magic elevation that you seem to key in on? Is it a specific actual like this many feet and between this many feet and this many feet? Or is it simply like the top third or the middle, whatever? How do you look at that? That's a great question because you're, there's some mountains I hunt that are only 4,000 feet tall. And if there's any type of logging road across the top of it, I hunt the sandwich part of it. I hunt where the deer know to stay away from that top road. Mm -hmm. If I get out on big ridges that have no roads on the top, uh, and these ridges can run from four to five to six, 7,000 feet high, I'm hunting that top. I'm hunting that lower end of the top third for those big deer. And it's because those big deer stage on that lower end of the top third. If there's no roadage at all across the tops, those big, long, awesome, huge ridges that we have out here that run for miles, I'm dropping down or getting up into that lower end of the top third. And that's where I do really well on finding the big bucks, the biggest bucks hideouts. And what happens is, is they've got that great wind advantage up in that top third. They live by those thermals all day when they're, when they want to lay down during the day. So they've got the majority of the day is an uphill thermal. And when they're ascending to get to their beds early in the morning or even before daylight, they've got that downhill thermal to get all the way up there with. And then what they're doing at night and in the evening and the afternoons is they're rolling down into the doe family groups that are in kind of that middle third and kind of living an easier life because deer pretty much live vertical until the rut in the mountains. During the rut, the big bucks, if you look at topography, run parallel. They run parallel lines at certain elevations to intersect with all of the vertical traveling does, mm-hmm. doe family groups. And the does like to kind of go up and down the mountains each day to feed and bed, feed and bed because of the wind and the thermals. So if that all makes sense, yeah. those bucks like to camp out a little bit above them. And I get in and I really hit those areas where doe family group core living areas, their circles kind of overlap with those big bucks that are camped out, usually higher in elevation above them. And it's not always the case, but it's often the case. Okay. So let me, let me throw an assumption at you and tell me if this is right or not. But if I'm looking at, okay, I'm looking at the top third, the lower end of that top third. And if I'm looking across a ridgeline and I'm trying to then pick, okay, where do I think 
the best places along this elevation line would be that these bucks might pick out as their hangouts. I might guess that it's going to be either where there's some particularly gnarly cover at that elevation line or where there's little spurs or knobs coming off of that ridge. Um, is that right? Or or how do you how do you narrow it down to that next stretch? Or is it simply just you go out there and you walk these ridges at that in that certain elevation until you just see it? Yeah, you've kind of nailed all of it. I kind of do a little bit of all of it, but the first part of your of your assumption to me was pretty pretty right on. I I look for those. I get out and walk the heck out of it, but I look on a map too for those those little finger ridges that are hard to see or you can't even hardly see on a map. I look for those benches that are out there at that lower end of that top third, um, a place where it gives a buck a little bit of ease, a kind of a kind of a, a little bit of relief because the, the country is steep in a lot of places like really steep. And it also, like you alluded to in your assumption, lots of cover, a lot of blowdowns. You literally can't hardly walk in on these big deer in their beds. They'll almost and mark and it all relates to month two of the year. So right now it's hotter than hell in the West. All these big deer, almost all of my big deer that I'm monitoring right now and the one that I'm hunting, they're all bedding up in north's north faces right now or at least bending into the north where they get really good shade they have water and food extremely close that buck i'm hunting right now that's what he's doing he's bedding in the north he's sliding out into a northeast bench and he's got miles literally a couple miles of food to pick from all native all natural so he doesn't have to go far to get water he doesn't have to go far to eat and he can stay cool in his air-conditioned north face compared to, it's literally 20 degrees hotter out in the south right now than it is in the north. And he's in that heavy timber, blowdowns. A a predator cannot walk in on him without him hearing him. And then he's got the uphill thermal blowing up all day long, upwind to him for most of the day, you know, 80% of the day. And he just lays up in there, and then when he gets that downwind thermal, he uses it to move. And the same way he comes up in the morning. So, yeah. That's, that's, you kind of assumed it pretty close to right as far as what I'm looking for. And then, yeah, I go pound the ground with boots too, to see it. Then I want to see the sign. I want to find those big tracks. Yeah, wha- I want to wha- find those rubs. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to kind of ask you exactly what you started doing there. I'm just curious, kind of walk me through what those scouting sessions look like for you. Because I, I heard you say somewhere that you look at spring and summer as the most crucial part of the entire year, maybe more important than even hunting season. Um, walk me through what those days look like. And when I say that, it's because from about middle of January all the way till almost April, there might be between three and 10 feet of snow where my deer spend their whole hunting season. So as soon as the snow comes off, it's almost like the ground has been mummified, meaning everything that they did right before the big snows hit and where they were hiding out, it's still there. That sign almost gets like frozen and covered up and not messed with. So when all the big snows come off in the mountains, I can literally walk into a place and, March, late April, or early April, late March. And if the snow's off, I can see, I mean, the stuff I see is pretty awesome because it's kind of been preserved because it's had so much snow just sitting on top of it. And I'll look for those trails. I will look for those big beds, rubs that 
literally big rubs that where a buck goes in and kind of rubs his way in towards maybe a bedding area. And the biggest thing I look for in the mountains are the, the scrapes that all the deer use, kind of a community-type hub scrape where they all come back to after they migrate. They use it all through the whole entire spring, summer, fall. And then when they exit, they always come back to those big community scrapes as a social hub. And I look for those. So I'm looking for all that. And I'm a shed hunter, man. I've literally found thousands of sheds in my lifetime. And I've killed several bucks that because a lot of my big deer will shed before the snows push them out, they'll tell me right where they're hiding out. A lot of my old deer drop their antlers before they get pushed out by the heavy snow. So that's a great indicator too. Yeah. So, and it's not all the deer, but it's the older bucks that drop early and they'll be wore out and they'll drop their antlers. Like I've had big bucks drop December 15th. Wow. I've had a lot of my old bucks drop by January 1st to the 10th. So those are great indicators too. Just so many different things I'm looking for in the spring to make it put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And then I'm literally cameras on my community scrapes when the snow's gone year round. And I even leave them in the winter when the snow's there. Cause I like to see what predators are in the area. Uh, I like to, you know, just leave them out all year, yeah. watch the snow get all the way up to the camera and then drop all the way down and then boom, the deer right back at those scrapes. So it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive how powerful, those community hubs are for mountain deer. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. 
can you can you describe to me how you can determine when you found one of these community scrapes versus just your ho hum used once in a while kind of scrape? Because it seems like this is a really important part of what you're doing in this big woods, big hill country stuff. Yes. A community scrape will have all the evidence on it of decades of use. So real simple. The branches have been beat to hell, tattered, twisted, chewed on. There's zero leaves anywhere on them. And they look like almost a witch's hand hanging down and it's just trashed. And below it, you'll always see, even in the spring, even if there's pine needles or stuff that fell in it, uh, it below it, it'll, you will literally just see three, four, five feet sometimes of evidence from the past season, even, you know, four or five months before, three or four months before that it was just getting hammered. And you just, you know, I see all of those pieces, those multiple, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 licking branches hanging off of, off of, uh, whatever species of uh, tree it is or whatever species of like brush it is that they use. And I've got several that I hunt different for different areas, but that it's just, you can look at the licking branches and the licking branches are just beat to heck, tattered, twisted, torn, and the scrape below it'll be usually three feet or bigger. And it's because it's had decades of use. When I walk up on any other type of scrape, if the licking branch doesn't show me what I need to see, I literally don't even worry about it. If the licking branch just looks like a tree branch hanging there with no wear on it and zero addressing to it, and I see a little scrape on the ground from a buck that might have had a testosterone high that day, that happens a lot. And I see a lot of those when I'm out shed hunting. And just to be fair to your or your audience, Mark, my shed hunting is, you know, a lot of times daylight till dark, 10 to 15 miles a day, gridding mountains at 20 yards for miles at a time. I'll go mile, drop down 20 yards, come back a mile, drop down 20 yards. So I'm really getting to see everything. You know, and I have my shed dog with me and my son with me. So we're just like not missing hardly anything. But we also run across a lot of cool buck sign in the spring doing that kind of shed hunting. And it's just that effort, that hard work, really getting up boots on the ground, wear your ass out all day long till you can't hardly walk. And we'll pick up eight to 10, 12 sheds sometimes. And then when we find a great big one, you can almost bet he probably dropped them, especially if he's high elevation. He probably just gave away his favorite core area hideout yeah, where he's hiding out because it's usually a high elevation too. So are you... Are you finding the majority of those good sheds at that same elevation zone as where most of that buck bedding is happening? Or is it lower because by December or January 1, they have to go lower? That's different every year based on when we get what I consider, a you know, a two and a half, three feet of snow. So on the years that the snow comes late, meaning the big snows that really push deer. And I run cameras year round, so I watch when they leave. I literally watch when all my big bucks exit and, and get out of there and they move down. If it's an early snow year and we get dumped on, like say around Christmas or first week of January, I can almost bet any of the sheds that I find uh, down lower are from a buck that probably migrated two, three, four, five miles maybe. 
if it's a late snow and those are, those are my favorite, and these are the big deer that I've killed because I find their sheds and I've killed a couple giants because I had really late snow levels. I didn't even get 18 inches of snow till like February. And then it just piled on in February and March. And I'll go in there in the spring and find those great big sheds of a buck. And it literally tells me right where, right where he's hiding because he's, he, he dropped those sheds probably in early January and our season goes up until Christmas. So he's hiding out in his favorite place to hide out. So every year is different and it depends on when I get that high accumulation of snow. Interesting. Uh, back to the scouting. You, you talked about the elevation on these ridges, on these mountains, but are there any other terrain features that you key in on that when you see them on the map, you circle it and say, all right, I got to walk that too. Cause this looks like a pretty good thing. I'm thinking, you know, like the, like saddles or yeah. whatever you yeah. mentioned benches, anything like that? Yep. Same stuff I do even in the Midwest where I'm in Iowa on the smaller, it's honestly just a much smaller scale. As long as I got some elevation, some ravines, some benches, some ridges, to me, it's just a grander, much grander scale out here. So yes, um, I have killed a lot of big whitetails in and on saddles that allow a big buck to get from one drainage to the other fast and easy and saving, saving, say, uh, three to 500 feet of climb anywhere else. I, tr- I circle those big time anywhere in that 5,000 to 3,500 to 5,000 foot range. I'm looking for those. I absolutely love the big long ridges that have fingers off of them. A lot of times I find the finger ridges that aren't even on the maps and I'll find those faint finger ridges and get out on those fingers and they'll have a little bench out on them. And I run into a lot of what I'm looking for on those and in in that 3,500 to 5,000 foot elevation. And I do hunt a little higher than that on some bucks, but you're asking me kind of for the, you know, the majority, right? Yeah. So I really like that kind of ground. Uh, it, and then I've also set up on hillsides, mountainsides that are pretty steep because the deer have created a community scrape on it because it's the only place they get away from pressure. And I'll hunt those steep hillsides if I have to on a big scrape. And my son killed the biggest buck of his life, a public land, almost 165, when he was 13 years old with a bow and arrow on one of those. So it's a combination of those features where I feel like deer like to spend a little more time or like to travel through more often in the giant woods. It always has heavy security cover. Food is always close. And I'm always in conjunction with some type of social community hub. Okay. And if I don't have it there when I find it, Mark, I build it. If I don't, if I don't, yeah, I'll build the scrape and put it, put the deer where I want them. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, now, so you'll find them naturally in certain places and you key in on that. But when you decide you want to build one, what has what are the criteria to decide that a specific zone or area is worth building one? Because you can build one of these anywhere. And I've heard you say that you can kind of get these bucks to hunt you a little bit when you create a community scrape like that. But it must be like there's got to be the right the right place to do that. Because if you put that in the wrong place, I'm sure it's not as effective. How do you pick the right places for that? Right. So for, for decades, I've backtracked deer as soon as I get snow. And we get snow early. Um, and 
I'll snoop around and do a lot of in-season scouting if something isn't working like I want it to, or if a big buck gets cold on me or figures me out and, and quits coming where I need him, I'll move. So I start getting snow in October and into November, and as soon as I get snow and if I need to go scout, um, and it, these big woods, it's kind of nice having snow because the deer are so spread out and it's so big that I'll go find literally by – looking on a map and also knowing what my deer are doing in the area and how they're ascending and descending day and night in the morning and the evening and where they're trying to hide out. I'll literally walk into what looks really good on a map. And usually I'll run into a scrape in there, but the snow lays everything out for me as far as tracks go. And I can really play off of all the other hunters based on how they're staying away from the other guys that are pressuring them, maybe lower in elevation of me or, maybe down the road from me a mile or two miles or something. And I'll dive into that in October, in November. And I'll spend the day sometimes just walking. If I've got snow, I'm probably walking if I don't have a buck that's killable. And when I find heavy concentration of travel that really looks like to me, it'd be daylight timing on the travel because it's usually pretty high in elevation or higher. And I've got, all the doe tracks and fawn tracks I want to see and a couple big sets of buck tracks, boom, I'll lay a community scrape right in their highest travel corridor and hang a stand. And I don't post a lot of stuff on my little YouTube page, but I have one that I put in two years ago on the 28th of October and it had actually snowed and I got my scouting in and then it melted. <laughs> it was just a skiff and that's all I needed to scout for a day. And I doubled back in there. I scouted like a week before when I had a little bit of snow and I doubled back in there and built the scraper I wanted to. And, uh, I no joke. And I have videos all over my, uh, little YouTube page to prove it. I had two one sixties and a one eighty on that community scrape and four or five does and probably four or five younger bucks within 15 days. Wow. And then I, then I killed, then I killed the 162 on that scrape a month or not a month. Yeah. A month later, December 3rd, I killed him digging in that scrape when I was hunting the big deer. Wow. Yep. I want to, I want to get into the details of how you make those scrapes like what you're specifically doing and, and any particular unique things you're doing. But I gotta, I gotta ask just a little bit about how you find these best of the best bucks. Is it, is it simply that you are everything you've just told me, finding the right elevation, finding where the habitat comes and finding where you've got great cover and, and all these things? Is it simply that if you find that combination of factors that you will find these top tier bucks if you check enough of them? Or is there some other secret sauce that you're finding like I'm, I'm one of these top tier, these big, big, big ones. I understand that you can zero in on a bunch of, on like a decent number of deer. So I guess I'm wondering, is it the spot or is it that you have so many spots like this and you run cameras on so many spots like this that eventually on three of those 30 really great looking spots on a given year, the jumbo ones will show up in, in one of those. Okay. It's not even close to lots of spots in a war of attrition and just trying to do numbers, not even close. No. And a lot of people, I think, think that about me. Oh, this guy just runs a hundred cameras and finds big deer. Hell no. I freaking study the hell out of genetics. And I've spent so much time in these mountains and I pay close attention to where 
the best genetics tend to be for decades. And I study where every big deer's ever been killed. And if I don't know the truth about where he's been killed, I don't believe it. And I'll literally, for me, it's about 90% of re, me really tuning in on the genetics that I like. So <laughs> if I get into an area, Mark, that has piss poor genetics and I know it and I can see it based on my camera evidence, I'm out. I go hunt where the big, I mean, you know, if you want football players, then you go find football players. If you want basketball players, then you go look for that genetic. If you want soccer players, you go find that genetic. I treat my bucks the same. It's all about the DNA that they're spreading in their drainages. So I've got some drainages that are just freaking producers because of the DNA. And that's what I target is DNA. And then the ability for that, DNA to survive and reach ages of five or six or seven in the bucks. Interesting. So then I guess if I wanted to reproduce your strategy, let's say in my part of Idaho, where I don't know that stuff yet, if I wanted to try to do something similar, I'd have to cover the country though to find where these little pockets are eventually, right? So I would have to do the war of numbers until I found these zones that had those, right? Well, here's what I do, Mark, if I was you. If I was hunting where you were, I'd go down into every sporting goods store, every local little cafe in those in that area, every everything you can walk into publicly and just look for big deer genetics on the wall. Hmm. I've killed a couple great big bucks because I went into a restaurant and I saw the genetics that were badass, and I thought, I'm going to get up into this country. And I'm just saying, this is, I mean, I pay attention to everything everywhere. You go visit, you know, you're out of state. So yeah, when I go, when I go out of state, everywhere I go, my eyes are on the the genetics of anything I see hanging on somebody's barn, uh, somebody's cafe and somebody's sporting goods store and somebody's gas station. That's what I do. And I, and I found a lot of big deer just paying close attention to the area's genetics. And I get into every book, every resource that I can find uh, big game records, county records, uh, study the hell out of it. And then I look at where the deer probably have the least amount of rifle pressure because I deal with a lot of rifle pressure in a lot of areas out here. Yeah. Got to get away from that. Okay. That all makes, that all makes sense. Um, let's get back to the scrapes. So you're finding these zones of heavy deer activity that are away from human activity and you're creating this hub. Uh, you know, most everybody listening knows how to make a basic mock scrape, but are you doing something different than the average mock scrape that Joe Schmo is making in Michigan? Um, what does it look like for you? You know, I want to say one thing about that last question. And I'm going to answer this. Sure. You are correct though, too. When I said, when you said is, is some of it just boots on the ground and finding big sheds and good genetics? Yes. That's part of it too. Okay. To your mock scrape question, you know, I have a lot of guys now that have, that have heard my stuff, watched, seen kind of the success I've had, and they're doing this. And I've taught a lot of people how to build mock scrapes, like in person, went out in the woods with them, showed them how to build one. They'll turn around and send me a picture of one they built a week later, and it's honestly, it's not going to work. <laughs> it, it's not authentic enough. It's not detailed enough. It doesn't have the authenticity of something that catches a five-year-old buck's eye and nose and says, you've got to get that big deer. And my big deer walk in and look at him for the first time on video. I run all video on every scrape that I build. 
I run all video on every buck I hunt for 30 seconds to a minute because I want to learn everything about his reaction. So what happens is, is when I replicate these, it's detailed. It's the exact favorite species of licking branches that that drainage shows me based on my scouting. It's the right species. It's the right look when I find a community scrape. I mimic, I copy that. I sculpt that out with the licking branches. I build the scrape in the same fashion, size, everything to a detail. And then I always put mock rubs around it because the best community scrapes I ever find always have rubs around them. Hmm. So I build this, I build this scenario, this scene for these big deer to walk into and the scent. And I use buck fever synthetics. I've used it for 20 plus years. The scent, they, they never shy from it. I've never had an issue. The look of the licking branch, which is multiple torn, tattered, beat to hell, totally looks like it's been there for decades. I'll literally harvest the right species of uh, limb just to hang it a hundred yards away on a tree and I'll prop, you know, I'll tie it onto a tree and use some paracord and get it all perfect. And at the right, literally at the right height. And I build it so that when these deer walk into that for the first time, they smell it and visually they just lock onto it and you can see it in their eyes. They just lock onto it and go, and they literally have that look like how in the hell did I miss this? (laughs) Yeah. And they always walk over to it. And Mark, I've got video after video of them locking on my big deer. They walk over to it and they just start sucking air in through their nose and breathing it out their mouth, checking it. And they start bobbing their head. And then they get their head up around that licking branch. And I've got that forehead gland sent on it. And I've got urine in the dirt. And I'll put four or five different deer profiles of synthetic urine in it because I want it to be, I want it to come across to them like there's several different urines in there, not just one. Because that's what a community scrape, even residual scent, smells like in one. Those deer can smell different urines in that mm-hmm. dirt. So, so I'll put every urine profile I have, even in the summer, even in May and June, when I'm building one. Because I want different profiles of urine scents in there. It's all urine, but they all have a little different, you know, twist to them. So I'll do that forehead gland on that sculpted out beautiful licking branch and it just locks them in and then they start coming back to seeing who's there and they instantly always start over marking it for me the does the bucks the fawns all of them and they'll overmark, and then they start competing if there's good bucks you know if there's a couple studs there i get more frequency than i do if i just have one big stud like the one I'm hunting right now, he's the king of the freaking mountain where I'm hunting. He doesn't have anything near him that even poses a threat. He's harder to kill than the ones that have two or three studs in there. Can, can you, I know when you described how you make these, these scrapes that you mentioned, you try to mimic what's done in that specific drainage in that specific area, but are there any generalities you can describe so i'm wondering like for example the the scraped out area underneath you know you might find your average ho-hum scrape might be you know two foot by three foot oval but then these mega scrapes i'm imagining are like a car hood is that do you have any kind of general guidance you can offer there 
Yeah. Um, in my country, in the mountains, and even when I've hunted all the other states and what I see on the big ones, it's usually, you know, three feet, three feet's actually pretty big. Um, I like to make them about four feet on the bottom and I V them out on the top underneath the licking branch, just like the bucks do. I take a big, I'll just break off a big limb and I'll, I'll dig that dirt out to where there's, I really dig the dirt down about two inches, inch and a half, two inches. And then I, and then I, uh, blade it back in with that stick and make a bed. So I have awesome, soft, absorbing dirt in that scrape. And it's kind of a V pattern and it widens out at the bottom to about four feet. And up top it's, you know, it starts as a V and widens out pretty quick. So it kind of looks like a, a teardrop almost. Okay. Um, and then I place that so that the top of the V is literally right under the licking branch. Yeah. So it looks like it shows years of deer working that, working that, uh, dirt, you know, down, down into the wider portion of the scrape. And I make a really nice churned up dirt bed. I make sure there's zero vegetation in it. I wear my latex gloves or my rubber gloves and I literally dig every piece of vegetation out of it that could be there. There's some roots in the ground sometimes, you know, just, I just make sure it's like pristine looking and it looks like a natural community scrape looks like, uh, when they're really working them hard, even the dirt part. And I'll do that even in the summer, even in the spring. So the dirt, if that answers your question for the dirt, it's, yeah. it's pretty damn good size. Sometimes, sometimes five feet. Yeah. Sometimes I really blow one up. Um, and for me, it's, it's kind of like artwork. It's I get a feel for the drainage and what I've seen in there. And I also kind of have an idea based on all the years of hunting these different areas. And I'll try to mock and mimic the best of the best scrapes I've ever found in that area. Do so, you, because I, there's a lot, there's a lot of visual that people don't take into account with whitetails. They're extremely locked in to scrapes visually. Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to go back to um, a, a few more of those factors that help you zero in on the right spots for the scrapes. I know we talked about there's the, the upper third line where you're going to have these bucks bedding, and that's also the line where lots of times during the rut they're cruising, right? Um, and then you've got the no, – No, no, no. No? No, no, no. They're, they're, they, the upper third is where they like to bed. The line that they cruise, they drop into that. They drop down and cruise horizontally in that middle third where the does where the does spend bed. most yes. of the time. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So so then my question was then, tell me elevation for these community scrapes. Are those typically on the doe elevation line then because that's where they intersect or uh, what about that? I like to place them kind of at the higher top top end of the doe normal hangout. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of their core area where. I, where my does just like to hang out and live day to day, I'll usually set up at the top end of their elevation or in the top third of their elevation where my big bucks will kind of work down into that elevation and run horizontal through it. And that seems to work really good where those core buck areas and core doe family group areas intersect. If you could draw, you know, that's the easiest way for me to explain it where they, where the circles intersect with each other at their elevations. I follow you. Now you mentioned mock rubs. Yep. How how are you making these yep. mock rubs? How many per area? Um, give me some details there. Okay, and the, over the years, the bucks have really showed me. Just I used to just make the mock scrape, and I'd make a mock scrape in the right spot, 
and I'd instantly have three, four, five rubs pop up instantly. A big buck would come in and just literally overmark the whole freaking place. And he'd rub the shit out of trees or two or three would do it. So what I started doing is doing that ahead of time. I'll go in at least two, sometimes three, and I place them visually on purpose for every pretty consistent wind that they're going to walk in on. So that way, if they're like 50 yard or 30 yards away, it's easier, in my opinion, for a big buck in heavy cover to see a mock rub over a scrape. You know, licking branches can really blend in until you get up close. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of a they're kind of a 20 yard visual, 25 yard visual, but a uh, and you probably feel the same way. I would guess when you're out shed hunting and stuff, you can see a rub oh, 50 yeah. yards away pretty damn easy. So I use those mock rubs as visuals to get the bucks to come and inspect it, and then there's a big scrape there. So I'm placing them visually, especially one that faces the downhill thermal, one that faces the uphill thermal, and then one that always faces the prevailing winds for the most part, where they're going to walk in and use that wind in their nose. Yeah. I usually, you know, it's three, it's usually two or three or four always, depending on the layout of the spot I'm wanting to kill a deer at. That makes sense. So then you're just taking a knife and slashing up the side of a tree or what? I take a, I take my tree saw and I just scrape it down. I scrape the cam. I scrape down to the cambium on the smaller trees that, you know, that whatever the deer show me, they like rubbing on. I pick the same species. If it's there, I mimic the big rubs I see in the area. I always put a good one in though. That's visual. So it's, it looks like a horse, like a big boy laid it out there. And yeah, I, I just, copy exactly what the deer show me in my woods and I copy what I'm seeing and over, you know, and I literally on video, I have bucks walk up, and I spray them with that forehead gland and I have bucks walk up and sniff them and rub on them. It, it's pretty wicked and nothing else. It's a great sign to get them to walk over and find the scrape. It really does. In my opinion, I've seen it on video. I think they'd notice that from quite a ways off. Yeah, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. It's it's not something I've ever thought to do. I do a good amount of mock scrapes, but it it sure it it seems like a great idea to have that visual cue, bringing them in, and, and like you said, it those rubs stand out like someone spray painting the side of a tree. You can see it from a long ways away, and I'm sure it's the same for deer. Yep. Um, now yeah. Yeah, we're attacking their senses. You know, I, I go right after their biology in every aspect I can. And I like how everything you've described, everything you do, and this applies to all the best deer hunters I've talked to in their own unique way, but you're very detail focused. Like there's all these little details that you're trying to mimic nature or that you're focused on. And and obviously that's one of the things that has led to the success you've had. And, and I guess along those same lines, I want to hear about the details of how you're setting your cameras up because you're, you're using these community sc- scrapes. Um, I think, one part is to hunt them, but the second part is obviously they're a huge part of your your scouting strategy. You get these videos that tell you a lot. Um, how are you setting up your cameras so that you're getting this great footage and this great intel, but you're not spooking these deer? Um, can you tell me like how high, how far away, on what trees? Do you, do you come from a certain angle so when they come up to the licking branch, they're not looking at your camera? I don't, I don't know what it could be, but tell me everything that you're thinking about when you put the camera up. So... When I put a camera up, if it's a brand new area, I usually always hang one pretty high because I've had bucks in the past that do not like eye-level cameras. Um, I use what's called a spy-high system. 
which has got a up to 15 foot telescopic pole. It's got a male and female apparatus that I hook my camera to, and I literally can put it up to 12 feet, 15 feet high and take it down without ever climbing a tree. Wow. It's, it's badass. What's it called? So I use the spy high system, spy high, spy high. Okay. And those guys, yeah, and those boys aren't giving me anything or pumping me at all. I get nothing from them, but I like their system. It's wicked. And on public land, the majority of dudes that walk by my scrape or elk hunters that go through and don't even know I'm hunting there and they don't see any of the whitetail stuff, they never see that camera up high. So I really like a high camera, at least one. And I usually start with something up fairly high just to start in on a spot. But the truth of the matter is when it comes down to the bucks, it's all individual to every big buck I'm trying to kill. That buck I'm hunting right now could give a shit about where a camera's at. He does not care. He doesn't care if it's low, high. He doesn't even look at him. He doesn't freak out. He walks by him, doesn't stare at him. As soon as I, I had a big buck a few years ago that if he saw a camera, shit, I wouldn't see him for a week or two weeks. So, so Mark, to answer your question, it's always going to be individual to the buck, but to play it safe and on public land, I like that high, I like to have a high camera in almost every setting and every potentially or not potential every spot I have that has a, a stud on it or a in a year or two superstar that's coming up I run three cameras at least per scrape and I run per yes per spot even if I'm not going to hunt the deer or kill him I get years of detail on him sometimes two years before I move in to kill him so I'm studying my three and four year olds constantly with three cameras that have big upside. You know, I've got a four-year-old right now that I call Captain America that if I send you a picture of him, you'd say, why aren't you killing that deer? <laughs> but but I know what he can turn into. And the buck I'm hunting right now that I sent you pictures of, mm-hmm. I left that deer alone, and he was probably gross 170 last year. Yeah. You know, he was right there, high 60, 70 last year. So my whole point is individual to every buck, when in doubt, hang them high. You won't spook them. Uh Either another easy way to do it, and I did it for years, is just take one of my steps uh, from my tree stand and go hang my trail cameras. And when I have to go in and check, I'd have to do a step. So on the high ones, a lot of times I'll let the high one run, especially during hunting season. I'll just let it run. And then I'll hide one or two cameras. And I mean, I hide them. I camouflage them. I cover them up and I'll get them at eye level and I'll put them quite a ways back. And as long as my target bucks and up and comers aren't spooking from them at all. And I use all the, you know, the, the, the infrared and all the, the blackout cameras. And I do everything I can not to have a big bright flash. Not that every buck's afraid of that. Cause they're not, but some of them are, um, yeah, I, I run cameras quite a ways away. Like the technology so good nowadays. A lot of my stuff's back 10, 15 yards of my scrapes or 20, even, you know, 15, 15 yards back. And what I do is place those cameras pretty close to my tree stand where I'm trying to kill something out of that way I can slide into my tree, pull my lower level camera cards without ever crossing or putting any ground scent or scent over near where I think I'm going to have him walk by, which is usually in conjunction with that scrape somehow. That's what I was going to ask was how you're able to check these without messing up the area because when you're running on video all the time, I got to believe battery life and SD cards, you know, are much more quickly uh, depleted. So how often are you checking these usually during the season? 
okay, so some of my cameras um, that I know I'm not going to go target a buck there, but I want to keep track of him. I'll make the intervals much longer in between on video so that I don't get too many videos. I run the biggest SD card allowed in the camera to the 32 or 64, put lithium batteries in them, and I stretch out the trigger time. On the big deer that I'm wanting to kill and get a bunch of info on, yeah, I'm in there enough hunting him during the season that I can easily swap the batteries out once a month. You know, that's piece of cake. And every camera is set up near my kill tree, the tree that I'm going to kill out of, so that I don't have to infringe hardly at all on where I'm shooting deer at, which is only 15, 20 yards away a lot of the time. I feel... Well, I want to I want to take the next step from scouting and pinpointing now with trail cameras and you're on the boots and everything. I want to shift to now how you're actually hunting these deer, but to make sure we've really got your whole preparation part nailed down. Do you think you could use the example of that buck you're hunting this year to Walk yep. me, walk me through like, yep. every, everything we've just been talking about. Like, tell me the details of this deer. Yep. So, how did you find the general area? How did you scout it? What elevation did you focus on? Where did you run your community scrapes? How did you get the cameras yep. to find him? I think this would be a really interesting yep. way to illustrate all these concepts, and then we'll move on to the killing deer. Yeah, yeah. So, so this deer, I don't mind sharing at all. He's a public land deer. Um, I mean, obviously, we're not going to talk GPS, and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> It all started, it all started with gene pool, um, remote, pretty remote, not extremely remote, but remote enough to where I feel like the human nature is that a lot of people want to just do everything the easiest way possible and get by and make it happen and, or, and be okay with that. I like to try, or I purposely don't like, I purposely go where I think it's kind of hard for people to put the effort in. And that might mean a long drive. That might mean uh, hard walking. That usually might mean some steep ground or something that just kind of deters the average human being from even wanting to try it. And that's where I tend to find some bucks in the right elevation. So this deer that I'm hunting right now, um, he's pretty interesting. He's actually in a in a really heavily blow down area, lots of blowdowns, lots of wind damage, ton of feed. It's probably a logged area from 40 or 50 years ago. So the timber that's in there now is not real big, but it's, you know, it'd be big to most people, but not in the grand scheme of things out West. And what I liked about this spot that I chose early on, on a map, and I I'd driven through the country before eyeballing it, but I got on the map and I saw this ridge that just extended a long ways out. And it was the elevation that I like. And it had literally on the north side of it, on a topo, one of the steepest ravines. And it prob- the ravine on the north side drops down probably at least 1,500 feet. I mean, it goes way down into a hole. And then that ravine runs to the north on the north face runs probably three or four miles and there's not a road in there. Now there's a road way out across the top, but a lot of people, in my opinion, don't want to go way down in and hunt on a big mountainside and pack a big whitetail buck 
uphill and get him out of there. That's just my thought process. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to bone him out, pack him out on my back. And I'll tell you what, I like to eat whitetail as much as I like to kill him. So, um, my family lives on elk and deer. That's what we eat. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the whole process of finding this guy, I went out, um, and built some mock scrapes initially walked it, saw some little scrapes, found one I really liked, but it was too close to where I parked. I didn't like the proximity. And I found a great scrape that I ended up putting a camera on it two years ago and all the deer in that area hit it, but at night. So I kind of treat like a mountain logging road, just like somebody would treat a farm field too open, too much activity, too many cars driving up and down it, you know, and too many for a mountain buck might be one or two a day in a drainage and they're on high alert if they're, Mm -hmm. if they're close to a road. So anyway, I got out there quite a ways, Mark, and, uh, literally picked a spot where I thought it'd be cool, a nice spot, got far enough away, great feed. It was in the summer, early summer, probably late spring. And I built a community scrape and it was just had all the right details, the habitat, the terrain features on a big bench. Uh, the, the North face was literally 50 yards away that dropped off into that ravine for literally thousand feet or more. So it was wicked. And I could hear the creeks and the tributaries running down below me down in there. And nobody's hunting down in those super steep faces. Nobody can't hardly. I mean, it's ridiculous. So anyway, the first deer that hit my camera was that big deer. Wow. First deer within a day, first deer. And what I did is I placed that scrape so that the downwind evening thermals would run down into what I think the bedding area was in that North. So I knew all those thermals would suck that scent down into that North, huge North face. And I figured any big buck that was down in that north below me there would come up and check this scrape. And then would also send it, uh, the prevailing winds and everything would blow that scent all over. And this was way back in, I think it was, I think it was May. And this is, I'm talking about a couple years ago. And he was really a great deer, even when he was younger. And I could see all the genetics and I thought, man, he, you know, he needs another year and kind of just left him alone because he was young. And then, Last year, did the same thing, same spot. He was in and out of there through the season. Nobody killed him. Boom, shows right back up and got big. And then it was like, damn, we better take a look at hunting this deer. But he was only four and a half. I thought he was four and a half. Sometimes, you know, you're not always right, but Mm -hmm. I thought he was four and a half last year. So anyway, once we got him in hard horn, my son and I determined right at the first of the season, he was only four and a half. Once we really got to look at him on hard horn pictures. So we only like sat there twice and we got out. We left him alone. Totally left him alone. Let the cameras run. Checked the cameras through the whole four months and kind of watched what he did. And I noticed that I was still probably too close to road access. So in May of this year, I knew what I was going to do. I looked at my maps. The feed's all there. The ridges are beautiful. Uh, Everything is just has everything he wants could see where he was coming up out of that north a lot living in that north and coming up out of it even in the winter until it got too much snow he was still coming out of the north and hiding out in it because nobody goes into it so then this year i moved quite a ways on him to where i felt like he would feel safer to move in the daylight and i found a giant community scrape within 50 yards of where i put my uh dropped my pin on my base map and I literally walked right in there, found those rubs, found that scrape, and thought, I'm in it. This is his. 
He's the stud in this area. There's a couple other, there was a couple other good bucks, but I had a lot of wolves on camera in there too. And this year it ended up being, he survived. I haven't seen the other big five point that was in there last year. When I say five, a five by five, um, but he survived and it was, you know, I had him and got him in June and he's been there ever since. And that big community scrape that I found, I just refreshed it, opened it up a little more and, I pretty much got every deer in that area hitting it right now. And he really hit it well and fed all over in there. This area is full of huckleberries and he loves huckleberries. I got oodles of video of this guy eating huckleberries, but anyway, um, I've got good food. He's got his North face that he can hide out in. It's hotter than hell right now. That's where he's living. And that's where he pretty much hung out the last two years in that general area. I just moved closer to his bed. I think I'm within 300 yards of him right now. Wow. One more question on the the community scrape scouting plan. Once you once you locate a buck, you know he hits he hits your camera. You know that this good one's there. Is it only ever just one community scrape in the general area, or will you say, "All right, I got a big one here. Now I want to you know spread a wider net and see where he's roaming and other spots I might get a, might be able to get a shot." Do you do you? Do you put more cameras out and more community scrapes out within a, along that same ridge? Or I don't know, like when you're hunting 80 acres in Michigan, I've got, you know, six cameras all over the place. But when you've got a million acres, do you just put one per large area or what's the, the, the numbers we're, we're talking about here when you try to figure these deer out? So it all is based on what he's doing for me. If he's showing me good daylight and that he likes that spot and that he'll daylight it, and I know I'm close based on his movement patterns and he's in the daylight a lot, I'm not moving. And the last thing I want to do is move him around and me be at one scrape one day and he's at my other one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so for what I do in this big woods giant country is, man, if it's daylight work, if I got bucks daylighting and working it, does daylighting and working it, and I leave it alone. Uh, if I got all nighttime, and all I ever have is nighttime of a big buck. I move right at him. And I really study on video where he's coming from. And I pick, you know, I can pick the hell out of the map and pick everything out where he's probably at. And I'll just move towards him a couple hundred yards at a time. And usually when I do that, I pick him up. Um, a good example is a buck I hunted a couple years ago. I had to move half a mile. And when I moved half a mile and picked the right bench up higher, I got him all the time in the daylight. And then something ended up killing him. Something ended up killing him. I don't know if it was a hunter or a wolf, but I was getting the daylight of him a ton. And then he just disappeared. So all that to say, no, I usually don't tend to just scatter scrapes all over and cameras all over. One, one problem with that, in my opinion, on these mountain bucks is if you're out there traipsing around to three or four different scrapes in a general kind of area, you're leaving your freaking scent everywhere. Mm-hmm. I love to slide in, get as close to a buck's bedroom as I can. And his bedroom out in this country isn't one spot. He'll have an area that he likes to bed in. And boy, if I can get him to stay there and use that area, and I call it a hideout, through September, October, November, December, that's incredible in the mountains. So when you find that kind of spot, it's the area he loves. He really trusts it. So when I find a buck that shows me that, I might move at him a little more if he quits daylighting on me, but he's still around a lot. 
But this time of year, September 17th right now, when it's the testosterone's just starting to pick up, uh, I'm just watching him every day change a little bit in his behavior. Like, I hunted yesterday and got to pull my card, and it's the first time I've seen him at my scrape run a little buck out of it. First time he showed some aggression. So I'm liking what I'm seeing. And Monday, my big deer that I'm hunting was daylight. I could have killed him in uh, legal light in the evening. First time he's daylighted in there since August 20th. But he likes that area. I know I wasn't spooking him because he didn't leave. And I know that the reason he stopped August 20th and the season doesn't even open until the 1st of September is because it was 90 plus freaking degrees out. It was hotter than hell. I know what that old boy was doing. He's laying in that north. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to be up in the 90 some degree weather when he can go out. It, and this country, you know this, Mark, about the mountain country. You've been in it. Yep. It cools way down in the evenings. Very big swings. Our big swing, our deer absolutely love. Those big old bucks love it when it cools off, just like a grown man likes the cool basement at his house versus up in the upstairs where it's hot. You know, yeah. it's the same concept. And I see that with the older bucks. I've got several beautiful, I've stud four-and-a-half-year-olds that are walking daylight right now that, I could go hunt and kill. Uh, I just don't want to shoot them at that age. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Let's, let's talk about this next phase then, which is hunting season. So you've you found these core areas that you like. You've 
put cameras out over these scrapes across different places and you've zeroed in on your your top bucks or two or three or four bucks. Talk to me about your, yeah, talk to me about now the hunting strategy once the season kicks off. Is it really, is it primarily focused on these, these scrape trail cam combos? Um, or, or what is it? Not just scrape. No, I'm Mark. It's, it's bad. Proximity to his bed. I got to get close. I just got real fortunate with this buck that he's camped out really close to this scrape too. Um, it's feed. He has to have feed right there that he likes. And I've got him on video a ton, just eating the native vegetation all around me, like literally just chomping. And he's a, he's literally a huckleberry monster. <laughs> and I still got huckleberries up there. So huckleberries to these bucks are just like bucks that eat apples. Yeah. I'm in one of the thickest huckleberry patches you've ever seen. I can literally walk into my stand and pick a handful of huckleberries and, and stop for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and have a handful of huckleberries and throw them in my mouth on the way in. And where the scrape was, it was dynamite because it's just a huckleberry patch with a big community scrape that they built, the deer have built over the years. Kind of makes sense to me because it's a great feeding area too. There's all kinds of green grasses and green vegetation in there right now too. So what I'm seeing on my cameras is, yeah, to answer your question, bedding is crucial, huge, and feed and water right now. Now his water is below me down in the north that I'm that I see him coming out of. I'm not going to bail down into that north on a straight mountain face with downhill thermals and ever kill that deer. I just, it's not going to happen. I'll blow him out of there because it's a downhill thermal in a north face. North face thermals run downhill way longer than south face thermals. There's a ton of downhill thermal in there. Sometimes it switches all day long on a north face. So north faces are tough to hunt when they're super steep. They're really hard to try to kill. And he's so close to me anyway. I'm sitting back just a little ways, probably a couple hundred, 300 yards from him, maybe 400 at the most, and letting him do his thing, letting him be comfortable. I'm actually seeing him start to act different because we got cold weather coming. Um, the climate's, you know, everything's changing. We're getting rid of this hot weather. And I noticed his testosterone's up a little bit the other day. You know, I'm seeing him kind of get freaking aggressive with these other little bucks. So it's bad, it's water, it's feed, and it's social. The social part is the scrape part. I try to attack all four of those. So let's talk a little bit more about stand placement because while it it seems like you're able to peg deer to a general bedding area. It sounds like that's a much wider area than what I might be focused on in Michigan, where there's a little swampy patch and a couple isolated islands in it. And I can tell you, man, it's a damn good chance he's bedded on this island, that island, or that island. Um, and then I know they're, they're going to the soybean field or whatever. That's pretty easy to connect point A to point B and then say, okay, I got to get between it. Right. But out there right. where you're talking, there's there's huckleberries and native stuff everywhere. So food's everywhere. Your bedding could be this whole north is, face. How do you... Uh, honestly, Mark, bedding, bedding can be 100,000 acres. I'm not shitting you. <laughs> Yikes. Mark, it's, it, it's hard to explain to people that have never tried to hunt in the mountains for deer. It literally is endless. They do what they want. They don't have to bed in that small little swamp. They don't have to stay in that block of 200 acres of timber. When I, when I go out to Oklahoma, Iowa, North Dakota, those places, 
it's so freaking easy to pinpoint there and get it in, in my opinion, as far as pinpointing, not saying it's easy to kill a five or six year old buck because he's still a survivor in his area. Yeah. But this is a, this is a giant scenario as far as country goes. So yes, it's, you know, to, to, to really look at it and to, to get on these deer, I feel like a guy has to be extremely meticulous and careful with stand placement because I have to allow my buck and I've watched him do it now a ton on video when he comes in and I always hang old man's beard in all of my videos as a windicator. So I always know exactly what he's doing in conjunction with the wind that he has at that time, every time he walks in. <laughs> so when he walks in right now, he's always coming with at least the wind in his face or quartering to his nose every time. And Mark, I'm getting 50, 60 yards out on purpose where I put my cameras. And even at night, the windicator is in my view and I can watch him J hook in using the wind always. So stand placement, my stand is set up to where I can come down the ridge walk down it, climb up into it, never cross where I have this deer all over on video and not cross his wind. My, the winds that I'm using and hunting off of in the evening right now or morning, I have to have the right prevailing mixing with the right thermal to even go hunt it. And when I do, it also has to give him that deer, the wind that he'll come in on because he only comes in on certain winds. And I've got that, I've got that documented. It's simple to see with my windicator. Uh, when there's certain winds in there, they're blowing the other way and he, it's not blowing towards his bedding area. Guess what? He doesn't come in. Mm -hmm. He's doing something else. But the nice thing is got this buck on a, an evening thermal. And there's always usually the same evening thermal unless there's, unless there's a heavy prevailing to override it. And right now he's literally like 90% of the days, at least, coming through the area at least at night and just starting to daylight right now. So those evening thermals, once the sun starts setting, right, it just starts dropping down that ridge. And it's, it's how, how do you keep him from smelling you anytime you were up there? Do you, are you so confident in how far down or how far it's got to be ahead of you, right? If you're, because you're, you're, I'm trying yeah, to think of the scenario, your wind would be dropping down the ridge too. So he must be ahead of where your wind's going to drop what he's doing he's coming in he's coming up this north face and he's kind of hooking up into this spot and i'm off to i'm off to the northeast of him and i sit and throw my milkweed out all the time even when i hung that stand in the evening i sit in there till dark this summer and just threw it and watched it and it's doing pretty much the same thing for me every night when that wind starts to drop I'm up on some higher ground above, even elevation-wise, than where that scrape is. He's kind of coming up through a vacuum draw, not a draw, just a depression in the ridge, and he's coming up through there all the time. And my wind, it's, it's wicked where I'm sitting. I'll throw out my milkweed even till dark, and my wind comes literally right across my face and bends right back behind my tree and drops the milkweed back behind me almost perfectly every evening I've hunted. I've had almost every deer in there on camera in the daylight so far 
and they haven't even looked at me or acted like they knew I was there. People can say whatever they want, but I hunt 27 to 30 feet high. I've got some high ground on him. I've got the thermal bending back behind me. When I throw the milkweed out, it's just incredible to see it bend back behind me, which I need because he's not, when I say behind me, Mark, that's higher in elevation. He's yep. not coming from that higher elevation. Yep. He's coming from down the ridge, up in elevation to me. So I think our wind, uh, I think my wind cone is missing him on his travel route through my scrapes and up by me. It's missing him by about 30 yards. Oof. And it's still a downhill, but mine's bending back behind me and sifting to the ground behind me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think I follow now, it. Yeah, and if I get in there and that wind's blowing right at him and his interest, I will leave. I'll leave. Even I, I, I won't ruin this deer because, man, he's in there all the time right now. I'll blow his ass out of there if I'm stupid about it and sit there with the wind blowing at him all day where I know he's coming from. I just won't do it. But I've got my tree placement and entrance and exit. I feel like I have it dialed perfectly for how the wind and thermals work down there in the evenings and in the mornings. And boy, when I get any type of south wind pushing across me with an uphill thermal, he has no chance if he comes through. Mm-hmm. So the only the only wind I can't, only wind I can't hunt with is a straight west wind. I won't go in there. So he's 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 south or he's he's northeast of me. I won't hunt with a straight west. So I won't he, chance it because my wind could blow down into it. Yeah, yeah. What, or what am I trying to say? <laughs> How do you see this plan evolving as you push closer to the rut? Because right now you're you're hunting essentially a bedding, you know, a, a, a movement pattern out of a general bedding area zone, it seems like. Um, but are you going to start to shift to some kind of different setups for the rut to try to catch these bucks cruising or something like that? Or do you still kind of just hunt the edge of the bedding near these scrapes because it's, it's some kind of connective tissue to, to key in on? How's that, how's the stand placement evolve? Yeah. First of all, I'm not hunting bucks at all. I don't even hunt deer. I hunt a buck. Yeah. So everything I do will be based on what that deer shows me. Um, if he keeps living right there, and if he does what I think he's going to do in these next two weeks and show up daylight, other than me being a 300-mile round trip to hunt him every time I hunt him, if I'm there that day, he's dead. And I believe he's going to show up daylight. I'm going to say it right now, the rest of September, two to three times minimum. He's Because he's already starting to show, like he's really comfortable on video at this spot. And he showed up daylight for the first time Monday. And he's comfortable as hell, and my wind would have been perfect for him. So now the reality of it is it's a 300-mile round trip to hunt him for me. I can't go up there every day, but any chance I get to hunt him, even if I got to go 300 miles to hunt two hours, I'm going to do it. And I believe I've got all the winds uh, dialed. I looked at all the winds for the next 15 days, and I looked at all the temperatures. I'm literally dropping 20 degrees in temperature starting Saturday. I love that. Um Mark, my nighttime temperatures are dropping from the 60s down to the 40s. Ooh. Up there at that elevation, it'll be high 30s. I'm telling you, and I and I mean this wholeheartedly with this deer, with where my stand's sitting and the way the wind's working in there, it's it's not me spooking him or he wouldn't even come in. He wouldn't even come by here. 
if he knew I was right on him in there close, he walked in behind me the other night on camera after I left 21 minutes later. Wow. Without a, without a care in the world on the video, not even looking nervous, just walked right in up into that scrape and walked through. So what I'm getting at is I think I'm really in the game with this mountain buck. It's, it's, it's a lot different than other hunts and other areas that you hunt. This dude is probably going to slip up one time in the month of September and I got to be there or maybe twice. Okay. As we get closer to October, my setup and game plan is even better. I'm going to get more bucks finding that scrape that are, that are traveling farther. If that's his scrape and he wants to own it, like he's acting right now, he will, he will monitor that scrape. And I've already got three does there total. I have a fawn doe and two adult does, and that doesn't sound like much, but in the mountains, that's pretty good. I've got, I think seven or eight deer there total since May, which probably sounds crazy to people in the Midwest, Yeah. but this is mountain country. This is mountain country and there's not a lot of deer. So all that to say, I'm not leaving until he shows me a reason that I got to move on him because I think I'll kill him there. That this is, this leads me to one of the big overarching things I'm curious about because I hunt some big woods stuff and, and obviously it's not as big a woods as what you're doing. And it's not mountainous in the same ways, although a new place I'm hunting in Idaho might be, but, um, what I'm curious about is the frequency of how many times you hunt these places. And you kind of just answered my question, but you know, out here in Michigan or Illinois or Iowa, you talk to guys and it's always the power of the first sit. You get that one time in there and then they're going to get onto you. And every time after you go in there, these deer figure you out and your chances go down exponentially. So it's the rage right now is being mobile, hunt all these different places and keep these deer on their toes and never sit the same place too many times. But when I think about these big woods situations where there's this lower deer density, uh, I sometimes have in, in some of my own situations, I've wondered, man, if I just hunt this deer, if I hunt this spot just once, you know, that deer maybe only comes through here once every seven days. And, you know, there won't be any deer coming through here except for every few days. And if you do that, you're just, you're never going to hit him on the day he's there. So my question, I guess, once I've finished rambling here is, how often or how long can you hunt a spot without it getting blown up? Um, or do you just need to kind of camp out in a place like this as long as you do it smart? Because as it sounds like is the case of this buck, there's not a lot of deer, but eventually he'll come through if you're smart. So that was a horrible question. Spot I <laughs> no, I get it. I totally know what you're asking because there's, I've got a mobile setup and I'll tell you what I use that sucker when I need to, when something goes sour and a buck, here's what a lot of guys don't want to admit when I screw it up. So if I screw it up and blow this buck out, I got to go find it. And that's what I'll do. And I've had to do that in the past some, but I don't do it very often anymore. I watch every deer that's there. They walk under me in the daylight. This guy already showed me who he is August 20th without anybody being up there in the woods near him at all. And he is a smart old bastard. And as soon as it got to August 20th and got hot, he said, I'm done moving in the daylight. And it's not because the wolf's chasing him. It's not because I'm in there hunting because nobody's up there and the cameras show it. He is already biologically showing me 
that he's coming in earlier and earlier and earlier in the evenings as the conditions, the temperatures, the upcoming scraping uh, phase in October is going to get closer. He's already uh, showed me this week that he wanted to run a little buck out of there. It's just a matter of being extremely intelligent and patient with him because my setup's pretty darn rock solid and bulletproof because I have not even had a deer look up at me yet. And I, and I have animals in there every day, but one so far on, I believe four or five hunts. It's, it, it is a patience game when everything's working right. And he's there on camera, at least at night all the time and not acting. He's not acting nervous. He's not walking in funky and really looking around. He's freaking walking right in. Um, and showing earlier and earlier and earlier approaches. I honestly believe he'll probably start showing up. He'll probably show up in the morning here pretty soon. Probably roll through there in the morning. You know, he just needs some cold weather and he needs to feel, he needs to feel like it's kind of go time here pretty soon. And I get that every year at the end of September. Every year at the end of September on these big hot, these these big bucks that living in the hot, hot weather, as soon as it starts to cool down, it gets better. So, I'm not ruining that stand at all. All of my deer are showing me that they're walking by me. The, I got an old doe in there. That's probably smarter than him. She just likes to get to that area and feed around in there and hang out in there with her fawns before any other deer shows up. She just does it. And she is as cagey. I watch her, man. She's a crackhead. She is careful <laughs> as hell. She always uses the wind. She got two fawns and she's like looking for predators all the time. I can, I just watch her. She's, she's real savvy. Anyway, so I'm not that guy. I kill almost all of my big deer, four, five, six, seven, six in, sometimes 10, sometimes a year later, same spot. Um, if I moved over on that deer right now, it's September 17th and bump him. I've had deer move on me, Mark, that I've screwed it up on and pushed it too hard. Big bucks move a drainage and stay the whole year move a whole drainage over, which wow. is five miles through the air. Jeez. And I'll find another drainage and they'll live over there the whole season. So I'm dealing with a different animal than a animal that doesn't get that heavy predation or get the shit scared out of him pressure. He's real comfortable right now in his body language. And that's why I run video because I can see it and how he's behaving. He's, he's not even walking nervous at all. He is rolling right up in there and, being the big hoss, you know, he's really, he's feeling pretty comfortable. So long as I don't, you know, long as I don't screw it up somewhat and I, I don't plan on making any mistakes on him. It's just a matter of, it's matter of me being there on the day or two that he shows he will show, he already showed up once daylight and he, it's a matter of me getting to be there on that day that he shows up. If he was right out my back door, he'd be in trouble because I'd sit on him and I'm not one bit worried about that setup other than with the West wind. If there's a west wind, I won't hunt it. So, in order to hunt, it, it seems like if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to pull some like generalities out of this that other people could apply to their own unique situations, you're if you find a spot like this that has all these factors combined to make it a sweet spot, and you have this scrape with the cameras that verifies it and tells you, hey, there's a buck I want to kill. It's in this area. The next thing is having. Right a set that you can hunt enough times without blowing it out to finally catch him making that mistake. Right. So can you give me some best practices for d 
developing a bulletproof set like you have there. So uh, just like it, give me the, the playbook. Yep. Yeah. And Mark, I have five or six of these spots and I've got over 35 Pope and Young plus bucks from these kind of spots. And I've hunted some of these spots up to 10 times in a season. And then, then the big dude will finally make a daylight appearance and I'll kill him. And I'm passing up some beautiful deer that most people would just go, holy shit, you got to shoot that deer. And my son is killed. I mean, arguably probably the biggest deer ever killed by a teenager in Washington on public land with a bow doing the same thing with me. So bulletproof is the key. And it's, that's, that's an extreme, that's kind of an extreme word, but you can do it if, you know, if you've got that perfect entrance and entry that the majority of all the deer don't want to come from, for a reason I come in, you know, on this ridge that literally the deer parallel across it, but they hardly ever walk down it. And it's because I've picked out a gnarly trail that S's down through there. And I've made my own trail that, and, my, and I took my buddy in there to help me one day set up her in his summer. He goes, how the hell do you freaking get out of here? How do you even know where to walk? That's just years of me knowing every little tree and every little spot to turn at and move at. So anyway, I purposely worked my way down through horrible blowdowns that deer won't walk across. So they're not following me through. And I've got a snake pattern to it that I get through quietly. I literally this summer on the way in and out all the time, anytime I went in there, every pine cone, every stick, everything is gone out of my path real carefully with my feet, do that all the way down. Um, this stand is set up for that wind up there. I can hunt every wind and every thermal at that spot, in my opinion, except for a west. So on a west wind day, I probably won't be in there. And I'm not crossing him at all. And these bulletproof setups can last you decades. Decades, which I don't think many people are doing. It's a whole different concept of, in my opinion, how to hunt a whitetail. But I, one reason I'm doing it, Mark, is because of the mountains that I'm in because of the deer density that I'm in, because of the way the deer react to getting blown out. My big deer will move a drainage yeah. because I have proof of it and I've watched him do it. I have to play the game a little different. When I was hunting Iowa, when I hunt Oklahoma, I don't care at all if I bump a deer. He's coming right back in there because that's where he needs to bed. That's his best spot. That's his safest place. I totally get that, and I support that, and I hunt totally different when I'm in a spot where deer have to pick, you know, like your Michigan spot, you pretty have a pretty damn good idea where they got a bed, right? Yeah. Yeah. My deer have endless miles that they can move and get that and bug out to. It's big country. So for me, it's all about that social aspect plus the feed, plus the bed, everything that allows me to hunt that four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10 times in a whole season. Now that's spread out over four months. That's not necessarily ter terrible. I'll either kill that deer or I'm going to blow him out one or the other within, if he does what he's doing right now, he's going to get killed this year or I'm going to blow him out and have to move if I screw it up. That's what's going to happen because of the way he's behaving and how close I am. That's what it's going to boil down to. Or out of pure luck, he's going to coincidentally in my opinion, not walk through there because they don't walk through anywhere in the mountains every day. I don't ever get that with mountains. Um, he's just going to get lucky on the days I'm not up there and 
you know, I, I really believe because I've killed so many of them this way that it's just a matter of time before I either kill him or he figures me out and he's gone. And then I got to move on him. Then I got to go find him. And that's where I get mobile and I'll find that sucker as soon as I have snow if I have to. But that community scrape there will keep producing. Even if I, even if I blow it on him, it will keep producing because it's just such a good spot and, and the does are all hitting it and the young bucks are all hitting it. I got a nice three-year-old hitting it. It just is what it is. Uh, talk to me about just one more thing on these bulletproof sets. If I'm trying to, someone's trying to listen to this and apply it to their place. Are there any things that you always try to do as far as, do you always try to set up above the main trailer, above the scrape, or do you try to set up below it from an elevation standpoint? Or can you just describe how you're thinking about the wind just in a generic way so that someone could, could just think it through? Yes. So, so for bulletproof for me, I always enter and exit and slide in. And I use the word from the side and I stay away from the thermals pushing down through and up through the scrape. So I'm off to the side yep. and I'm usually off to the side to where I feel 100% based on what my intelligence from camera shows me that that buck's going to enter in from the other side. Does that make sense? Yep. So first of all, enter exit is huge and stand placement that never crosses their nose. I'm never crossing their nose with a scent ever, unless they literally walk down my walk, my trail in and come right in behind me. And everything right now at that stand mark is coming in from all directions, except for the direction I walk down because I chose a pretty nasty way to get down in there on purpose. I literally have to S around through there like a snake to pick. And it's perfect because I don't have deer walking down an easy trail right behind me. It's, it's wicked. I'm even crawling through some thick stuff up a ways where they can't hear me just to negate them from crossing my trail. I mean, there's some, the blowdowns in there are unreal. There's some spots where the deer have to walk 60, 70, 80 yards around it to not have to try to walk through blowdowns that are chest high. Chest high blowdowns. Deer usually don't like walking through all that. Yeah, stuff. You know, yeah. they'll skirt it. So another thing I'm doing, Mark, that makes it bulletproof is I'm literally, my wind's blowing off over into that north face, but behind me and above me where I'm walking down through, and it's steeper than hell off of that. Like, it's just straight down forever, probably a 1,000 feet or more. So I like those barriers, those wind barriers. I don't expect a buck to climb straight up that north, pick up my scent, and come in from behind me, if that makes sense. Yeah. He's coming in down the ridge from me, up at me. So it's perfect for me. We're like kind of intersecting at a point. Makes sense. And then to keep a bullet to keep a bulletproof, I hunt high in this country. I watch my milkweed all the time. I literally throw it out day after day after day and watch what it does. And if that milkweed starts acting funny on the wrong wind and it gets bad, I will bail out of a tree stand if I have to, not to let my scent blow where his approach is. I'll leave, come back hunting a different day or I'll go. If it's an all day sit, I'll, I've had, you know, we've killed big bucks by all day sits by literally leaving the stand for four or five hours midday. If the wind's bad and then crawling back in when the thermal's right. I mean, I'm all, all about those details. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a matter of him coming in. Uh, again, my bulletproof sets are simple when you make sure that your kill tree you never have to walk out, check your cameras. You never have to cross 
their favorite pathways by you. That's really important, and a lot of guys mess that up. Well, let's I, – I feel like I've only covered the smallest bit of what I want to talk to you about, and already we've been talking two hours. <laughs> this is crazy. I, I got to let you go. Uh, thanks for sticking with me here for so long, Troy. Um, yep. How about one last question? Well, one last regular question, okay. then we'll do a quick rapid-fire thing and wrap this sucker up. And, and somehow I'll, I'm going to have to wrangle you yep. into another one because there's a lot to talk about here. Um, Worst case scenario, he he figures you out. Either you see him somehow, you know, booger you. Maybe the wind swirls or something happens, or you just notice he's not showing up on the camera anymore. Walk me through your game plan to get back on him. I'm very honest with myself about that stuff. As soon as he starts acting awkward and starts acting skittish or quits showing up, and he, I'll leave him alone. I will literally give him a week, at least a week, to see what happens because keep in mind, he might bug out because a mountain lion chased him out of his bed one night for a week. He might bug out because a pack of wolves that's in there comes through and harasses him. Um, I have to keep that in mind too. But all that to say, my game plan is on those big deer, I leave them alone. If they start acting funky or they quit showing up, and if he doesn't show up within – and I've got four months to hunt this deer. September is the first quarter of the football game. October is my second quarter. November is my third quarter. December is my fourth quarter. So I look at the big game plan. Um, if I got to give him a couple weeks and he doesn't show and he's not doing what I need him to do up there, then I literally will dive in to where I believe he's hiding out based on the whole layout of that country. And I'll go in and I'll build a scrape put some scent to him because I know he likes those and I'll see if I can find him. The, meanwhile, while I'm doing, while I'm waiting on him, I'm going to be on my game plan B buck or C buck, which are usually pretty damn good bucks. And after them, and I'm hunting two States. So I've got two or three bucks in each state that I want to kill or would be happy to kill. So that does help me to keep peace of mind and not get so wrapped up into where I'm not hunting. I'm always hunting. I'm always hunting a buck, trying to find one that's killable. If my stud, my number one, uh, you know, basically kicks my ass and figures me out, then I got to move on him and change. As soon as I get snow and can get him on camera, I'll go right at him. I'll backtrack his ass. I won't follow him and push him, but I'll backtrack him and get a good pattern on him. And as soon as snow usually comes, then I'm rolling into the rut and the Great thing about my scrapes, Mark, is my big bucks always come back usually, unless they're just scared the hell out of the area. They will at least come back in November, early November, and they'll check those does and check those scrapes. And sometimes I can literally, a month later, jump back in a stand and kill a buck that I couldn't kill in September and October, early October, and late October and November, and he'll come back in. As long as I don't pester him until he wants to come back and feels comfortable in there. Uh, those scrapes are really good from November 5th till December 10th. They're awesome. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've got some ideas like I thought I would. I've got some ideas now that I want to uh, put to the test, especially when I head back to uh, head back to Idaho to my mountain spots. Uh, I've got I've got some ideas I'm excited about now. So, Troy, 
This has been yeah. just as good as I expected it would be. So thank you. Thank you for that. I want to run you through five really quick rapid fire questions. You can just kind of answer like one word answers. We'll just knock these out. They're pretty generic, but I thought I'm going to start running these very generic questions past everyone and we'll see what everyone says. And then, uh, and then we'll let you go. So real quick here, Troy, does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50 yard shot at a whitetail with a bow? Yes or no? Never. Never. If, if you could only have one of these for the rest of your hunts, would you pick rattling antlers or grunt tube? Grunt tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads for whitetails? 100% fixed blade. Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting? Yes or no? Yes, you can if you need to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, in other, you got me on that one because if, if a buck's super close, super close, I'll shoot that sucker walking and he won't even know it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all these definitely Five have yard, their... Uh, yard. Yeah. All right, Troy, if if people <laughs> want to... Yeah, I stop them a lot with the top one. Yeah. If people want to follow... hands-free grunt. Sorry, I was just going to say, if people want to see what you're up to or see your hunts or anything like that, where should they, can they see that stuff anywhere? Yeah, you know, I tight with Andre DeQuisto and the Lone Wolf Custom Gear family. I film for them, Whitetail Addictions TV. Uh, my son and I's couple mountain buck kills are on there on the, the recent episodes, uh, one of the 10 episodes this year. Uh, and my if people want to reach out and talk to me and, and visit with me my instagram's the easiest it's uh mtn underscore man so mountain man and then 33 perfect troy pottinger on troy pottinger on facebook awesome troy well this has been a lot of fun i appreciate it i think we covered some really good ground so thank you for sharing so much Really appreciate you having me, Mark. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be on your podcast, and you know you'd really turn out some great stuff. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck getting that uh, getting that big one. I can't wait to see the picture with him on the ground. Thanks. I'm I'm after him hard. I'll be after him tomorrow. All right. I don't want to keep up any later. Then <laughs> go get him. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. If you're out there deer hunting right now, which many of you are, hunting seasons are open across a lot of the country. That's an amazing thing. I can't believe it's here, but it is. So best of luck to all of you. I hope you're having a blast. I hope you are trying to implement some of the new ideas you're taking from the, these podcasts and, and finding it helpful. I know that every time I go out there and every time I chat with somebody on this show, I'm finding new ways that I can adjust what I do in the field. And and that's a fun thing for me. I got to believe it is, or at least I hope it is for you too. So with that all said, best of luck, be safe, have fun. Thank you for tuning in and for your support and attention. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.